Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. American diplomats working to restore the 2015 Iran nuclear deal are said to be weighing the option of lifting a number of sanctions, as well as a nearly three-year-old terrorist designation for Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, an elite militia charged with protecting Iran's fundamentalist regime. Those sanctions have been a key component of the United States' leverage in the negotiations. Meanwhile, Iran's leverage includes the many citizens of Western and other countries that its Islamic regime has arrested or kidnapped. Washington Post journalist Jason Rezaian knows this concept of hostage diplomacy quite well. After 544 days of incarceration, he and three other Americans were released in a prisoner swap the day the original nuclear pact went into effect. In exchange, seven Iranians charged or imprisoned for breaking sanctions were granted clemency. Jason is with us now to share his thoughts on the dangerous new concessions the United States is said to be weighing for a new deal. Jason, welcome to People of the Pod. Manya, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. What has Iran done to deserve these concessions? It's a really good question. And I think that the truth is they haven't done that much in the last couple of years to deserve concessions. I think we have to rewind and go back to the original deal that was struck in 2015 that was working to do the one thing it promised to do which was contain Iran's nuclear program in a way that limited its ability to enrich uranium, gave access to inspectors from the international community, and really put eyeballs onto a nuclear program that didn't have those on them before in exchange for lifting crushing sanctions on the Iranian economy. Now, the promise for the Iranian people was that by lifting those sanctions, they would have new opportunities to do commerce with the rest of the world, to travel more easily, to bank more easily. And the hope, I think, from the Iranian regime's point of view was that that would lead to more foreign investment. And, you know, there were two camps within the regime. Those who believed that opening up to the world was really the best hope for their future. And I don't say that in a a way that I believe that those folks really had the best interests of ordinary Iranians at heart, but they understood that the regime's viability and ability to survive was connected with satisfying, you know, some of these demands of ordinary Iranians. And then the other camp was the ones that said, you know what, let's shut the doors. Let's be as insular as we have been at different parts of our history. It's the only way that we can keep a lid on this thing. And unfortunately, When President Trump pulled us out of the deal in 2018, that second camp was really emboldened. And, you know, there's been a whole host of things that have happened since then from both sides. I would say escalation from the Iranian side, but also from the American side and the Israeli side as well. So we're stuck in this moment right now of volatility that has, you know, erupted on several occasions, never into a full-blown open war, but we've been standing on the verge of that for a very long time. And I think that that part of the calculations of the Biden administration is that we need to put those same guardrails back on 
the nuclear program that were in place in 2016, I just think that the circumstances have changed so much and the realities have changed on the ground and regionally in such a way that a different kind of deal was probably needed. And as I argued in the column last week, while I deeply disagreed with the Trump administration's policy of essentially just undoing anything that the Obama administration had done with the nuclear deal being the shining example of that, I think it's equally short-sighted of the Biden administration to just try and undo the things that Trump undid, right? It calls for a different kind of approach. But frankly, the bottom line is we lost a lot of leverage. The maximum pressure policy that Trump had on Iran failed to get the results that he promised that they would, that would bring the Iranians back to the table in a weakened position. You know, those who supported that policy of maximum pressure say, well, you know, why didn't Biden just keep doing that? Well, you know what? The argument against that is why didn't Trump just do the thing that was working? Democrat and Republican administrations going back to before the revolution in Iran have not had effective Iran policies. We wouldn't be dealing with these issues if they did. And I think that there's an opportunity here right now to come up with some creative ideas about dealing with Iran moving forward, but only if the Biden administration decides to listen to disparate voices within the Iranian diaspora community regionally, and also, you know, learn from the few things that Trump did that were working on Iran. There weren't a lot of them. And so, you know, when it comes to, to the IRGC, again, I've argued for a much more nuanced approach to handling this threat rather than the blanket one of listing the entire organization and anybody that's ever taken part in it. I was speaking to a friend yesterday who is an Iranian-American journalist, been living in the United States for over a decade, and he recounted how when he came to the U.S. for the first time, he was on a no-fly list because he had done his mandatory military service in the IRGC. This is someone who's been a vocal critic of the regime his entire life, but through no fault of his own, you know, through his citizenship, he was a conscript in that military. And so, you know, there are other ways to approach this problem, but I think what they demand is creativity and a lighter touch, if possible. So let me go back to the original question about what they've done to deserve the concessions. And you mentioned how Trump had hoped that their weakened position would bring them back to the bargaining table. But in fact, the IRGC and the regime have been even more destructive, right, since the Trump administration imposed sanctions and imposed that terrorist designation in 2019, right? Certainly. They have been involved in disruptive activities throughout the Middle East as they have been, you know, throughout their 40-year history. There have been abductions of journalists in third countries and other dissidents, extrajudicial killings, clampdowns on protest. And, you know, to me, a big part of this is a myopic focus on one single issue, the nuclear program. Of course, Iran having a nuclear weapon would be a problem for the Middle East that would be very difficult to bridge. And for that reason, it's a very worthy goal and a strategic imperative to ensure that the Islamic Republic doesn't get a nuclear weapon. But that can't be the only thing that we focus on, right? There are a whole host of other issues 
often talked about are, you know, Iran's missile capabilities and, and other conventional weapons, but also the treatment of their own people within their own borders and their lust for influence in neighboring countries. But what would sanctioning individuals accomplish any better than the blanket designation that now exists? Last week, there was a, a military you know, weapons conference in Doha, and the U.S. government did not have prior knowledge of the fact that several Iranian IRGC commanders were present at this event. I mean, they had a booth, right? And that's the sort of thing that if you have designations on various people, you can go after them. You can also, you know, do it in more subtle ways with intelligence operatives sitting down and having conversations with these guys. If our goal is to really change the behavior of this regime, which a lot of people believe is not possible, but if another goal beyond that is to influence their decision-making in ways that may enhance the viability of civil society within that country, just pushing them into a corner in which we have no contact with them is not the way to pull that off. So I just think that the idea that we're putting the foot down and calling this whole organization terrorists, there are so many different ways that that's fallen through that hasn't worked for us. And, you know, I'm of the opinion that a nuanced approach that brings in a wealth of information that exists is the right way to go about any foreign policy problem. But the United States has already put its foot down. I mean, you used the word myopic a minute ago. It's Iran who wants these negotiations to focus exclusively on its nuclear activities. They'd be quite happy with Americans ignoring their terrorism, their ballistic missile development, human rights abuses. It seems like touching or even fine-tuning the designation, as you propose, would remove the leverage America has later to address these other matters. I agree with you that those matters should have been part and parcel of these negotiations now and going back years. But there was a determination made not only by Iran, but by other members of this coalition, our allies, but also the rest of the P5 plus one, that we're going to focus solely on this. And I think part of that was a strategic, long-term strategic mistake that has kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? We've been entrenched in negotiations with Iran over its nuclear program for more than a decade. And in that time, there have been intermittent periods where they've throttled back and done less work, and they continue to do now more work without these guardrails that were in place until 2018. Unfortunately, by the metrics that the U.S., our allies, Israel, Saudi Arabia specifically, but then also the rest of the negotiating partners in the P5 plus one, we've kind of boxed ourselves in. We've made this the one thing that matters, right? And so now they're really close to that thing. They've got the leverage. We handed it to them. I also wanted to ask about that, the proposal that you make in terms of breaking down the designation. We remove the IRGC as a whole, but you sanction the Quds Force. You sanction the individuals, the intelligence unit, and the individuals who carry out this terrorism. But again, even if you break it down and sanction individuals or individual units, does that give Iran a piece of good PR to build up business, so to speak? I don't think so. I mean, I think that most of the world already understands the menace that they're dealing with here. And my bigger concern is not about, I'm not in favor of necessarily delisting them right now. I'm making this proposal as a counter to what's being discussed, right? You know, if you're thinking about doing this, don't do it without leaving some, you know, measures in place 
to punish these guys. And it's specifically for that reason that I mentioned earlier of conscripts, you know, going back to the 1980s, a lot of people who are already retired are by U.S. law considered terrorists now. And that's not an argument that holds water. It doesn't hold water within our own legal system and it doesn't hold water with our partners internationally. So I would say that, you know, the reputational damage that Iran has done to itself by undertaking various forms of terror, whether it's hostage taking, extrajudicial killings, extraterritorial abductions, specific terror attacks on targets in different parts of the world, that's cost them more in reputational damage than undoing what was really an arbitrary measure by the Trump administration that backfired. Also, Iran's hesitation to make a public pledge to de-escalate its destructive activities in the region. They're kind of holding out until this, reportedly, they're holding out until this concession is made, until the IRGC is delisted. Should that be a huge red flag right there, that they're not willing to make such a pledge until we acquiesce? My feeling after having lived in Iran for many years and understanding Iranian exceptionalism, which goes far beyond the idea of the Islamic Republic and, you know, goes back centuries, right, is that it is a regime in power right now that can most be identified as wanting to have its cake and eat it too. And we see this in so many different instances. They want to be considered a credible, responsible member of the international community but they're not, right? They want to be taken seriously as a regional power. And I would say that they are taken seriously as a power. I mean, you and I both know that the leaders in countries all around the Middle East have a real fear of Iranian encroachment. And that's based on recent experience, but also an understanding that Iran as a civilization, independent of the Islamic Republic, is vast, very old, and influential culturally and has been for a very long time. I've not been to Israel before, but I know that, that Iranian culture figures prominently in day-to-day Israeli life. You know, the same can be said for, you know, the rest of the Arab Persian Gulf countries, for Afghanistan, Central Asia, Turkey, right? I mean, this is a cultural, political, military force that needs to be recognized for its significance. And I think that sometimes Iranian leadership confuses that significance, that historical significance, with something that this particular group of leadership has earned. They haven't earned anything. And so I think you're right to call it a red flag and should be a red line. You know, I mean, there's this idea of carrots and sticks that we always talk about. If you want something, you got to give something in return. And Iran has entered these negotiations since, you know, the Biden administration came into office with this attitude of they being the aggrieved party by the U.S. leaving the deal. I think if we were to start these negotiations the day after the U.S. left the deal or a month after or six or eight months after the U.S. left the deal back in 2018 or 2019, they might have had a case to make that would have been bought into internationally. But, you know, from 2019 onwards, their, you know, attacks on Saudi oil industry, skirmishes with Israeli forces in Syria, you know, attacks on tankers in the Persian Gulf, 
they're no longer in that position to say, hey, you know what, we were adhering to this deal and you left. That doesn't matter anymore. You were the Washington Post-Tehran correspondent for four years, two of which you spent in prison. Can you share your own personal experience and interaction with the IRGC and what that taught you? I imagine your firsthand experience overshadowed anything you learned from your reporting, but what you learned about the Islamic Republic's negotiation tactics and its ambitions, both nuclear and generally in the world. It's a a big set of questions. What I learned in my firsthand interactions with a supposed elite unit within, you know, the elite military force was that their definition or what we perceive as elite from afar is anything but. This is a a shabby ragtag group of individuals who've been given guns and badges and told that their job is to defend the survival of the Islamic Republic. And to do that, they have to root out any potential foreign external influence. And that's really the heart of why I was held and so many of these other people are held. I think that the mistake that Western negotiators have made is to overimagine how powerful and effective this group of people is. I've made the argument many times, and I'll do it again. When Iran is most forceful in its negotiation, most demanding, it's usually when they're at their weakest point. You can liken it to a poker player who's bluffing a very bad hand and goes all in and keeps going all in because the other side is afraid that he might have something in his hand. I think we've seen that so many times over the years. And again, by myopically focusing on this nuclear issue, we are ignoring all of the internal struggles that are going on inside the country. And the blanket designation of the IRGC, the travel ban, defunding of various programs uh, to Iranians, all of this has led to a weakened civil society within Iran which is the ultimate goal of the IRGC and those forces, right? They want to see no internal opposition to what they're doing. And they've been able to snuff that out pretty well. All you got to do is look at the statistics about Iran's brain drain and see how many of their best and brightest have landed on other shores in the last 20 years or so. So yeah, I mean, I think Ultimately, I learned a lot from that experience. I also learned that these are not the people that represent the hopes and dreams of 85 million Iranians. They represent the aspirations of holding on to power of a few thousand Iranians and maybe you know several million people who benefit from that. But it's a great minority of Iranian society that is supportive of the IRGC and its adventurism. And did you first encounter the thugs of IRGC when they abducted you or arrested you? Or had you encountered them in those first two years as a reporter on the ground? Before the Post even hired me, I'd been living there for three years before that. And I had, you know, run-ins with the Besiege, the local militias who are closely related to the IRGC, but not specifically part of it. It's more of a volunteer kind of neighborhood organization in different parts of the country that controls the streets in a lot of ways. I was called in multiple times by agents of Iran's Ministry of Intelligence, which 
is at odds. You know, it's the domestic rival of the group that, that took me hostage. And, you know, my interactions with all of them were similar in one way, which was that they don't have a very good understanding of how the world works beyond their own borders. They ascribe all sorts of ideas and notions to people who are from abroad based on how they see the world. If you're an Iranian dual national living in another country and you've come to live in Iran, you must be up to something. Somebody sent you. You know, it betrays their position sometimes because the attitude is really, you're American. You live in the freest society in the whole world. What would you want coming here? <laughs> right? And that was a sentiment that my interrogators made really clear. So I think that there is this kind of lust for freedom, even within the ranks of the IRGC. You are the executive producer of a new documentary by The Post that focuses on the American family of Imad Shargas, who is fighting to free their husband and father, who's been trapped in Iran for four years. Can you tell our audience a little about Imad and why he's been detained? Yeah, I think Imad and his wife, Bahare, were empty nesters. They have two grown daughters who had gone off to college, and they made the decision that they wanted to spend some time in Iran, which is the country of both of their births. They are a lovely couple who live here in Washington, D.C., and like so many other Iranians, after that nuclear deal was struck in 2016, they decided to go back and kind of give it a try. And I think soon after their arrival, several weeks Agents of the IRGC raided the home of Ahmad's mother-in-law, where he and his wife were staying, and arrested him, kept him detained for many months, and then conditionally released him in 2018 without returning his passport. He was given a slip of paper that said that he had been exonerated and all charges against him were dropped. But then some months later, got a phone call from his lawyer saying, I've received a judgment that you've been convicted without trial of being a spy for the U.S. I recount those details reluctantly because the truth is, at the end of the day, the cases against myself and every other person who's been caught up in one of these situations, there is no case. There's no there there. There are no facts. There's no evidence. There's no witnesses. It is literally, you fit the profile of a person who we could potentially use as leverage in negotiations with your home country, we're going to take you hostage. And one of the reasons that I'm so distraught about the current negotiations is that not only the United States, but the UK, Germany, and France, the four JCPOA signing countries that are democracies, along with Austria, the host country, all have citizens being held hostage in Iran right now. And, you know, we want to get this to a point where this issue of state hostage taking, which now far surpasses hostage taking by terrorist organizations, put a spotlight on this issue and really condemn it for what it is. It's an act of terror and an incredible abuse of power where all resources of a government are used to abuse and detain innocent people. I know firsthand what this looks like. But I'm very concerned that this is a problem that's getting worse and worse, and one that not only the U.S. and our allies have to deal with, but that, you know, the future is going to have to deal with. Well, thank you so much for joining us. 
I appreciate you having me on and, you know, engaging in these kinds of conversations is really important. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Of course, the historic Negev Summit of foreign ministers from four Arab nations, Israel and the United States, just concluded in Israel this past weekend, bookended both before and after by terrorist attacks. Eleven people are dead, and we offer our condolences to those families. May their memories be a blessing. My colleague Riva Gorelick, the program director for AJC Abu Dhabi, the Sydney Learner Center for Arab-Jewish Understanding, safely returned from leading a separate historic delegation of Middle East and North African leaders with AJC's Project Interchange. And she's joining us now from Abu Dhabi. Riva, who made up your delegation? We had nine phenomenal participants, three each from Bahrain, Morocco, and the United Arab Emirates. And each one of them is impressive in their own right. And together, the group represented a range of perspectives and professional backgrounds. We had lawyers, serial entrepreneurs, researchers, engineers, diplomats as well, and academic working in agricultural science, too. I love the term serial entrepreneurs and agricultural science. I wasn't expecting that. They weren't all career diplomats. That's what you're saying. That's right. So for a lot of our participants, this was a visit that they had been wanting to make for a while. And the main focus of this project interchange trip and hopefully future trips was to be able to connect Arab practitioners with Israeli practitioners and to create new synergies, opportunities, and new partnerships between Israeli and Arab leaders. So for example, a few of the participants had even begun learning Hebrew before the trip, which I think demonstrates a powerful commitment to cultural exchange. One of our participants is actually studying Hebrew as part of his professional diplomatic training here in Abu Dhabi. And there were a few times during the trip when he introduced himself to our guest speakers in Hebrew, which, as you can imagine, completely stunned and impressed our Israeli hosts. Oh, that's cool. That's very cool. So our group met with members of Knesset, policy experts, Arab-Israeli business leaders, artists, and academics in the field of agricultural science, too. One evening, we had dinner with the ambassadors to Israel from each of the three countries of Bahrain, Morocco, and the UAE. And we had representatives from the U.S. as well. And this itself was a very new reality for each of us. And I know that it was particularly meaningful for those participants who work in government back home. And you mentioned artists, too. What role did they play in the trip? Yeah, so we spent one evening with Netta Al-Kayam and Amit Haikohen, Israeli musicians who explore their Moroccan heritage through their music. This was incredible. One of our participants had actually been to one of their concerts back in Morocco, and I think it was pretty surreal for her to then be hosted in these musicians' home in Jerusalem. So the closeness of cultural elements like music and food throughout the trip really made the experience feel familiar. That sounds amazing. Has AJC ever hosted participants from Morocco or Bahrain or the United Arab Emirates before? So we've hosted people from Morocco and actually from Jordan, but this was the first project interchange trip to include Emiratis and Bahrainis. It was each participant's very first trip to Israel, though. I'm still in touch with a lot of the participants, and we're even planning some events locally. And as you know, AJC Abu Dhabi serves to foster connections, not only here in the UAE, but across the region. And now I feel really lucky to have nine more partners in that work. So what kinds of questions did you get that indicated a visit to Israel for some of them was long overdue? 
So, you know, since the Abraham Accords were signed in 2020, we've seen a lot of Israelis visiting the UAE, for example, by the tens of thousands. But travel into Bahrain and into Morocco and from Morocco and into Israel hasn't necessarily been as easy over the last 18 months. And now that travel into Israel is becoming more accessible at this stage in the pandemic, it's a really big moment after months, if not years of waiting. So the conversations that I had during the trip really underscored this. I know that one participant mentioned to me that by visiting Jerusalem, she was fulfilling a dream that no one else in her family has yet had the opportunity to do. I can also share another impactful moment. We went to Yad Vashem one day, and as we were walking away, I was speaking with one of the Bahraini participants, and he was reflecting on that experience and noting how he now understands that Holocaust education is something that has yet to be included in his country's curriculum. This was such a moment for me. It really floored me because I knew that in this conversation, it was coming from someone who could actually help enact that change, which, as we know, just has a ripple effect. Well, as someone who has never been to Israel either, and it's long overdue, I hope to one day accompany one of these Project Interchange trips. Reva, thank you so much for joining us, and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Manya. Shabbat Shalom to you, too. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for my conversation with Lahav Harkov, the senior diplomatic correspondent for the Jerusalem Post, about how Israel is offering relief and support for Ukraine without provoking Russian troops on its northern border with Syria. And amid the rise of terrorist attacks in Israel, you can join AJC in urging members of Congress to stand with the Jewish state. You can find more information in our show notes. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 